Welcome back from the bridge as we head into the fall of the year here in the low country of South Carolina and around the country. I'm Rick Jones of Fishbait Solutions and your host and captain. My good friend, the multi-talented Rick Chris, longtime college sports executive, commissioner, attorney, and consultant, will be here to discuss all of the enormous changes in college athletics and the need to think differently about opportunities and solutions. We'll give you one man's opinion from the soapbox and tell you about another terrific place to eat on the road with Rick. Let's get started. We're continuing our discussions of the seven C's of pitching business. We've already talked about competency. We've talked about context. And last week we talked about challenge. Today we'll add the fourth C, creative. Rarely do your initial creative ideas that you pitch in a new business presentation, rarely do they ever get implemented. But it says how you think and what you think will break through the clutter and get the attention of the consumer. We could spend literally days talking about the creative process, but it always begins with the brand strategy and then the sponsorship strategy to complement and amplify the brand strategy. Strategy involves whom does the brand want to talk to? What does it want to say? And where and when does it want to say it? The how is the creative. And that's the part I really like. I've always been an instinctive marketer. It's just in my DNA. Our agency has always led with bigger creative ideas, and we hope to continue to do so. Recently, we partnered with Luke Combs, Sony Music, the Southeastern Conference, the SEC Network, and ESPN to make the new Luke Combs song, South On You, the soundtrack of SEC football. This was a big creative idea. Luke had written this song several years ago, and we were able to persuade him to add some lyrics to make sure that all of the SEC schools were covered. And then we were able to debut it at SEC Football Media Day back in July. The song was released in August, and it has been a monster hit. And any time now that you see the SEC on ESPN, they are playing that soundtrack. I have had my share of creative ideas that won the day. Here are two I am very, very proud of. We had worked for Bank of America when they were the sponsor of the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta. They were both a USOC sponsor and a game sponsor. In fact, they were the financial partner that underwrote most of the things that the games were able to do in Atlanta. And they used this when they were building the transition between being called NC and B Bank to being called Nations Bank. And Nations Bank was a leading sponsor of the Olympic Games in Atlanta in 96. They made the decision to continue their relationship with the United States Olympic Committee leading into the Games in Sydney, Australia in 2000. Now, they didn't have any rights because they didn't have any business in Australia, but they wanted to remain a sponsor of the USOC. And during this period of time, Nations Bank bought a bank in California called Bank of America. And they decided that the Bank of America name was more valuable than the name Nations Bank. And so they were in the process of converting not only their acquisition of Bank of America, but other uh, retail banks like Boatman's in St. Louis and Barnett and others to the Bank of America umbrella. We did some research, and we found that consumers, American consumers of this era, remember this is about 1997, that consumers wanted to go to Australia more than any other destination. But we also showed that nearly 97% of Americans would never 
go to Australia. This was the uh, the era of Shrimp on the Barbie, Paul Hogan, um, all sorts of, you know, Fosters, it's Australian for beer, all kinds of things during that era. And so we proposed to Bank of America that they sponsor a tour that would travel around the country to the various banks that were now being repositioned as Bank of America. We call the tour the Down Under Tour, and it was a traveling Australian theme park. The shape of the tents, all the interactives, were in the shape of the Sydney Opera House. And so it had that iconic look that you get in the Sydney Harbor. And we had all kinds of stuff, Aboriginal art, Aboriginal artists. We had um, uh, a theme ride where you rode a wild uh, roller coaster ride. We had a opening film that the uh, Sydney Symphony Orchestra uh, recorded a special song for us that we showed images of Australia, had a climbing rock for Ayers Rock, had all kinds of interesting things. But the smartest thing we did was all of our brand ambassadors were actually young Australians. We got them from the Australian Tourist Board, and they spoke the language. We made the tour debut on the Today Show at 30 Rock, where we closed the street and had the interactive there, and then traveled it to 66 locations around the country leading up to the Sydney Games. I'm very proud of that. It really helped Bank of America utilize their sponsorship of the USOC, promote the games in Sydney, Australia, and promote the transition from Nations Bank to Bank of America. I'm also very proud of Walmart's sponsorship of the World War II Memorial. We were trying to build a memorial on the mall in Washington, D.C. My bosses were Fred Smith of FedEx and Senator Bob Dole. Senator Dole had served in the military in the Second World War. In fact, had been injured and had a uh, injury that stayed with him the rest of his life. Bob coached uh, Senator Dole, still alive today. He has... Um, a disabled right hand and right arm, so he always shakes hands with you with his left hand. And Senator Dole said, we ought to build a monument to this generation before we're all gone. And he was correct. And so we set out to build the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. Well, we were able to get Walmart to be a big, big sponsor of that. In that era, Walmart was promoting their greeters they would have senior citizen greeters that would meet you when you came through the doors at Walmart to say, how can I help you? Well, those senior citizens had once fought in the Second World War. And so we ran an ad campaign called It's Time to Say Thank You, where we showed the greeter in either his or her World War II uniform morphing into their Walmart uniform. Walmart was able to raise about $23 million for the World War II Memorial with jars at checkout lanes over eight weeks. That'll tell you the power of Walmart. I'm very, very, very proud of that creative idea. And then there are two more that I actually stole. I looked at one idea and stole it to create another. The first is the Final Four Coaches Club. <clears throat> I really stole this idea from the Masters. The Masters every year on Tuesday night has a Masters Past Champions Dinner. And the tradition is if you won the Masters the year before, you are the host on Tuesday night and you actually pick the menu of what everybody's going to eat. And even the golfers that are too old to play in the Masters, the Jack Nicklauses, the Gary Players of the world, they all come back for the Past Champions Dinner. Private dinner, the only way you get there is you've won a green jacket. Well, I asked my boss, Jim Haney, at the time, what have we done for coaches that coached in the Final Four? We make a big deal about the road to the Final Four. Not everybody can win it. And during the John Wooden era, nobody won it but John Wooden. And so what were we doing for those coaches that had brought their teams to the Final Four? And the answer is we'd done nothing. And so we were able to create the Final Four Coaches Club. The first year we did it, we had 48 former coaches show up. We gave them all a jacket, a blue blazer, basketball 
orange lining on the inside with their name and the year or years they were in the Final Four. There was only one difference in the jacket. If you won the championship, your buttons that were basketballs were gold. If you didn't win it, they were silver. The first year, we presented Billy Donovan with his jacket, which was silver. He had lost in the Final Four that Michigan State had won. Well, later, Billy Donovan won back-to-back national championships, and he wanted his gold buttons. So we were able to do that. One of my favorite stories is Ben Carnival, the great coach and athletic director at Navy, had taken North Carolina to the Final Four back in 1948. And... and, um, Ben came with his son, Corky Carnival, who was a great player for Coach Frank McGuire at South Carolina. In fact, was Bobby Crimmins' roommate. And uh, Corky brought Ben to the first Final Four Coaches Club, and he was in a wheelchair. Several months later, Ben Carnival died, and they buried him in his Final Four Coaches Club jacket. It's a big idea that continues today. It is a private lunch for those that have taken a team to the Final Four each Saturday right before the semifinals at the men's basketball championships. The second idea I stole, I went to Lillehammer, Norway, about 15 months before the Lillehammer games in uh, 1994, and uh, I saw that they were doing a daily T-shirt auction. They were counting down the days to the games, and they had done, you know, 500, 499, 498. I said, I'm stealing that idea. Brought it back to the Atlanta games. My client, Haynes, made T-shirts, and they made Olympic logoed T-shirts, and we created the Haynes T-shirt auction. So we started with day 500, and we did them every day at a major shopping mall in Atlanta called Lenox Square. We built a themed area in the concourse of the mall, where each day we had a celebrity auctioneer auction off a specific day from day 500 right on down to day one. And 100% of the money that we raised from that auction went to buy tickets for underprivileged children through Boys and Girls Clubs of Atlanta. And so we were able to take this T-shirt auction, raise a lot of money, and provide tickets to children that would have not been able to see Olympic events had it not been for what we did. I'm very, very proud of that. My staff actually bought me a shirt, um, day 400, that I own that hangs in my uh, office at home that they gave me before I moved and relocated to London. And so it's a really important uh, reminder of a great creative idea. For me, the creative part is the best part, but again, it's only one of seven critical parts. We'll come back next week with the fifth C, and that C is collaboration. My guest angler today is Rick Christ, a guy who's done so many things in college sports. He's the son of a coach, a graduate of Notre Dame where he played baseball, an assistant SID at Navy, got a law degree from Duke, worked at the Southwest Conference, was an associate AD at the ACC, was the commissioner of the Mid-American Conference, and is now an attorney and consultant. (laughs) A guy with a lot of experience and a lot of ideas of how to solve some of the current issues in college sports. Let's welcome my pal, Rick Chris, to the bridge. Hey, Rick, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be with you, Rick. Well, you're like so many people that I know in intercollegiate athletics. <laughs> you were a son of a coach. Talk about that, how, how, how it was to grow up in a household with a coach. Uh, it was great. It was great. I'm the oldest of five, and um, without a doubt, like the, the most uh, – the harshest words I could, you, any of us could hear from him was, you're just not coachable. <laughs> so uh, I think, um, you know, to me, uh, and you appreciate it more, you don't know it when you're in it, um, but you appreciate it, um, I think, as, as, uh, as life moves on. 
Um, just uh, uh, the ability to experience teaching and, um, and all the coaches that you have. And so, so um, I think we're, we look back and, you know, you only know what you know, but uh, we had a great childhood in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, it's sort of motivating. The family has uh, branched out, but we all sort of intersect both sports and education um, uh, in ways, I think, that are authentic to how we were raised. Well, you um, you were a baseball player, and you had a chance to go to Notre Dame and play baseball. Talk a little bit about that experience. It, it was um, transformative for me. I uh, grew up in Madison, uh, but was sort of, you know, it was mid to late 70s, and I was sort of itching to see a little bit more of the world, I think. And so I uh, didn't look at a ton of schools, but was fortunate to get into Notre Dame uh, and actually walked on there and, um, and baseball worked out. And so uh, my freshman or freshman year, our coach, Tom Kelly, um, really had uh, started to build some. Notre Dame wasn't scholarship and Rick, they weren't scholarship and baseball at a full level at the time. Uh, it was really football digger was starting to get it going in basketball, but the rest of the department was on training wheels. And so um, had a chance to sort of grow with the program. Then Larry Gallo, um, my last three years, Larry, uh, after coaching, I got a few coaches into administration. I will tell you that. So I got Larry Gallo had a very success, has had a very successful administrative career. Joel Maturi, my high school basketball coach and dean of students, uh, longtime AD at um, University of Denver, Miami of Ohio, and then at Minnesota. So Larry uh, is now at the University of North Carolina, and he's tremendous. I worked sports info while I was playing baseball, and um, yeah, you know Notre Dame. It was a is a special place, and I was lucky enough to have uh, four great years there. I tell and every, still stay connected I, with a lot of guys, as you know. Exactly. I mean, you a know, lot it's of kind of, yeah. yeah, a lot of can't, family. Can't give it yeah. up. <laughs> no, no. But I like that. I like that connectivity back to the institution. I tell people all the time: if you, if you haven't been to a college football game at Notre Dame, you have to put it on your bucket list. I mean, it is mm -hmm. a an amazingly special place. You just feel all the ghosts and uh, mm -hmm. all the tradition and all the values. I think it's also the most. I mean, cleanest, manicured campus I've ever seen. Just so much pride. <laughs> I just think that's important. I think pride is um, undervalued maybe today. Yeah. Uh, you you talk about putting uh, coaches in administration. I gave a speech not long ago at the <laughs> Duke Business School at Fuqua, and some kid said, uh, how do you go from being a college basketball coach to being a successful sports marketing executive? I said, it's a lot easier than you think. You just don't win any games. Yeah, yeah. Not good enough play. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard at all. Just get your ass kicked all the time. I mean, it's crazy. But I, I know one of the things that you did uh, while you were at Notre Dame was you had a chance to go play it at the Cape Cod league <clears throat> you know i want to talk about that a little bit my mom i grew up rick my mom was a huge baseball fan i mean loved baseball in every aspect and towards the end of her life i took her one summer and we we spent three weeks in cape cod and just went to baseball games wow. every day you know it's that 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 is just one of the again if you haven't done that as a sports fan that is a uniquely american uh, institution where college baseball players play for these little bitty towns uh, <laughs> throughout the Cape. Talk, talk a little bit about that. It was a, it was a thrill for me. I hadn't known a lot about it. And, um, and I actually went uh, uh, the summer of my junior year, which was a little bit later than most guys. And at the time there were two big summer leagues, the Cape and then the West coast guys, a lot of them played in Alaska yeah. and uh, you had like midnight games out there and they all, worked on the pipeline, you know, which I think amounted to making sure the oil was still moving through the, uh, <laughs> through the tube. So the Cape was different. Uh, you lived with a, a family. I ended up, me and another guy were on an Indian reservation. Uh, and, uh, that was a unique experience. Um, uh, you had a job. I worked for a Mason contractor who did a lot of work on the Kennedy compound. So that was interesting. And uh, and played at Katua, Larry Gallo, who I was mentioning, 
Larry was an assistant out there, George Greer, the head coach. And Katua was the only park, I think it still is, without lights. So it was sort of the Wrigley of, of uh, the Cape League at the time. And it was just a tremendous summer. Um, the talent was outstanding. I ended up, we had a really good team. I ended up um, having a, a really good summer. I think I finished fifth in the league in hitting and third on our team. <laughs> And uh, we had a guy, Terry Steinbach, who I think it's still a Cape League record. He had 430-something, and um, it was amazing to watch. So uh, it was uh, a special uh, three months, and I actually stayed in touch with a lot of those guys, um, you know, as, as careers took different paths. And uh, really appreciative to Larry and – um, George and, and everyone that you came across there for the opportunity. You know, we talk a lot about food on this show because I like to eat, but uh, <laughs> those, some of those little ballparks, you know, one one place has got, you know, amazing clam chowder and you go to another yeah. place and they got, you know, grilled corn and then you go to another place and get burgers. I mean, it's like, it is just Americana. It's just, It really is. Yeah. It really is. We had the, uh, the 4th of July parade where the team was sort of the featured deal and my family had driven out from Wisconsin, which was a whole nother story in and of itself. And, uh, and, you know, my sister's, uh, I think she was a freshman in college at the time. And so she was, she was liking that whole scene too. You know, <laughs> it was a, a lot of guys. It was a lot of guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, good place for her during that period. There's no question about it. Uh, and I think they made a movie about the Cape Cod League that was kind of a, so, yeah. a, a romance um, thing. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. That was not exactly my experience. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're supposed to say, no, he played me. That's what you should have said. I mean, you just blew that. Yeah. I just said, whoever Wilson that might have crossed paths with me, you know, they. You, you, you get some comments on that right away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, when you got out of Notre Dame and you'd worked in sports information, is that when you went directly to the Naval Academy? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I tried to I tried to hook on baseball-wise that summer. It didn't play out. Notre Dame Sports Info, uh, Roger Valdeseri, John Heisler, Karen Croak, now Heisler at the time. Like You felt so much a part of athletics there. And so um, uh, when baseball wasn't going to work out, and I – wasn't quite thinking grad school yet. Um, Roger was tremendous, and he introduced me to uh, Tom Bates, who was the uh, sports info director at the Naval Academy at the time. And, uh, you know, he gave the best recommendation, I think, anyone could ever have. And I didn't find out about it till later, but he told Tom, if you don't like him, I'll pay his first year salary. <laughs> now, I think the salary was like fifteen five, so I don't know that it was like that big of an extension for Raj. But you know, just uh, to have that type of um, sort of shepherding in, and then I get to Navy, Rick, and um, it, it couldn't have been uh, like luck enters into all this, and I arrive at the same time as David Robinson and Doug Wojcik and Vernon Butler and a Navy basketball group that would go on to play to go to the final four and um uh, basketball was the sport i primarily worked with did a lot with football obviously and navy football was good napoleon mccallum was a heisman trophy candidate and had some big wins including an upset at number two south carolina i don't know if you remember that yeah absolutely game or not yep, south yep. carolina comes in and um uh, so they were nationally uh, ranked. They were nationally ranked. Number they, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were number, they were two. number two. They were heading yeah, to, I think, was, the Orange Bowl, maybe. Yeah, or, that was Joe They Morris might have been waiting and, yeah. on a bowl. Yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, and so it was, you know, to, the experiences there. A top Gun had just come out. So all of a sudden, like, being at the academy for these guys, like, their confidence level sort of spiked a little bit, too, you know. And uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, so, again, you're spoiled by where you're at, Notre Dame in its way, and then the Naval Academy, you know, and every one of those people are going to go on to do special things in the world. And so uh, that was a great three years. Um, and uh, 
I, I think uh, in the back of my mind, I'd always thought I'd, I'd probably move on to grad school at some point. Really thought about coaching, but you know, I, I wasn't wired to coach baseball, and I didn't think you could coach a sport well, football or basketball, if you hadn't played at uh, a really high level. Now, I don't know if I was wrong on that or not. Certainly some guys have proved that theory wrong. But um, uh, uh, but uh, definitely then decided, you know, that law school is probably the fit for me coming out of Yeah, Navy. I was wondering about what made you decide that law school was the direction. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it wasn't um, – it was really more an internal discernment. Um, and and I, I took the um, the – GMAT and things for business school as well, but I thought my skill set was probably a little bit more wired to, to law school, um, uh, a little bit, you know, the communication part of it. Um, it was an econ major undergrad, but that was in the College of uh, Arts and Letters, so had taken the core courses in philosophy and government and um, history, the like, so I just thought Law school might have fit my skills and interests a little bit more. I was wanting to stay around sports, and Duke at the time had the top sports law professor in the country. And um, and in the end, I'd gotten to know that part of the country a little bit uh, from living in Annapolis. Um, I felt like I could stay around major college sports with Duke, Carolina, NC State, all in that triangle region. I knew the folks at Carolina well, didn't know the folks at Duke as much. And um, and in the end, as opposed to the Midwest, uh, to, was able to um, make it work at Duke. And, uh, and again, another sort of transformational part for me because it's, it's really um, where uh, form relationships that personally and professionally have stayed with me. Um, and to, you know, to this day, we have a lot of young people that listen to our program and we constantly try to reinforce the fact that you're going to meet people that are going to impact your career and your life, uh, and, and the, the ability to form relationships, this, you know, every business, but intercollegiate athletics is unbelievably incestuous. Uh, I mean, it, you know, you're, you're, it's not six degrees from separation. It's usually one degree. And I think you've said that a couple of times. You talked about right. the people you met at Notre Dame. You talked about the people yeah. that you met in the Cape Cod League. You talk about the people you met at Navy. You talk about the people you met at Duke. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just so valuable for people to realize it is all about people. And it's yeah. about the people that you deal with. So you get out of Duke, and did you go directly to the Southwest Conference then? I did. Yep. I, I spent my first year summer, I interned at the SWC. For those young people, a little research project, <laughs> um, Southwest Conference used to be one of the power conferences, eight schools in Texas and the University of Arkansas. And um, I, I went down there for a summer at like 600 bucks a month. My next summer I spent uh, on Capitol Hill working with Aiken, Gump and Strauss for like 1300 a week. (laughs) So I wanted that experience. And uh, come third year, I had a couple routes. I was was lucky school had gone well. So I was offered a federal clerkship on the seventh circuit court, which would have been a prestigious appointment, probably would have taking me into um, academia. Um, I got an offer from Aiken Gump to work in their legislative section, um, which, you know, for a political junkie, I was not, but I was interested. But seeing how people there, like I still went to the sports page first. And um, in the end, I thought um, that might be uh, sort of something that separated me out. And uh, the Southwest Conference, Rick Baker had just left to move over to the Cotton Bowl, and Frederick Covey, the commissioner, called and offered me the position in November and as assistant commissioner, and I was very appreciative. I said, you know, I'm only a couple months from getting my degree, um, and I really want to finish that out, so I don't think that'll work out for me. And he said, we'll hold the job for you. So... 
um, that was something that I wasn't expecting and certainly appreciative of. And so started Southwest Conference and and it hit right away and reminiscent of issues today, very reminiscent. Um, uh, there, it, there was trouble in the league. Uh, the c- commissioner went in, had heart trouble. He goes in for a heart transplant. Kevin Lennon moves to the NCAA. Um, uh, Susan uh, Blackwood goes down to uh, San Antonio. Pretty soon, I'm like the senior person all of two months in. And uh, we end up getting sued over our TV deal. And the realignment pieces start moving. Arkansas approaches the Southeastern Conference. Texas A&M and Texas are frustrated with what's happening in the league. So I sort of got a crash course. And I learned a couple things, Rick. One, (laughs) I thought I was fairly educated. Um, in the Southwest Conference, a 2-7 vote was a majority vote. I go, okay, Texas and Texas A&M want something. You better land there. So that yeah, was it was one the, thing yeah, I learned. Yeah, it was the ultimate. I think George Orwell and Animal Farm wrote, some animals are more equal than others. And in the Southwestern no. Conference, it was uh, – yeah, it was Austin and College Station that were the no two. No question yeah. about it. Yeah. And, uh, and you started seeing the TV, um, the Supreme Court decision had occurred a few years earlier. Uh, I think every SWC institution but two had been on probation, you know, in that decade, NCA rules probation. Presidents were just starting to assert themselves. There was a special presidential convention in Dallas in 1986, mostly related to the recruiting issues that were occurring in the SWC. And so in addition to my math lesson, I was starting to see the tectonic plates move a little bit. And you started seeing the major independents, Penn State, Miami, Florida State, Uh, move into leagues and conferences was where um, your TV deals were going to be negotiated, where your postseason opportunities were going to occur. And it's really, really where the action sort of started being. Well, I think one of the value that you bring right now to the ecosystem is the understanding of what has happened historically. You know, this is not new. Um, I always said the president of the United States needs one more cabinet member. He needs a historian mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. we, we forget. Mm-hmm. But you you live this and you saw this. And, of course, obviously the Southwest Conference, it was really the wild, wild west. You had a governor mm-hmm. in Texas that was the bag man for SMU. You had, <laughs> I mean, you just had a lot of stuff. One of my favorite stories was, you remember, Hoss Brock – Oh yeah, you know, ran the Cotton Bowl, and <laughs> Hoss wanted Texas every year. I mean, he just did. I mean, he just was such a snob about you know if, if Texas against didn't Notre like, Dame, yeah, Texas yeah, against yeah, Notre yeah, Dame. yeah, that's what he wanted every year. And I remember, I remember two stories. One, there was they asked him about Baylor. Baylor, uh, I had played for, I'd played with a guy named Neil Jeffries. Neil Jeffries mm-hmm. was a high school quarterback at Shawnee Mission South at Overland Park, Kansas. I had lived a year and a half in. In Kansas, my dad got transferred, and and I was a teammate of Neil Jeffries. In fact, his dad, Jim Jeffries, was the head of FCA, and yeah. uh, was actually my Sunday school teacher and and, and a great good. friend and everything. And he was Grant Taft's best friend. And obviously, yeah. Neil goes down to Baylor and plays for Coach Taft has a great career. And they they win the Southwest Conference. And they said, somebody <laughs> interviewed Hoss and said. What do you think about those Baylor Bears finally coming to the Cotton Bowl? And he said on television, he said, hell, those Baptists are going to drive up I-35 with a $10 bill and the Ten Commandments and not break either one of them. Bingo. Bingo. It was so good. And then later on, I think he said something when Houston got to the Cotton Bowl. Yeah, He said, Houston, he said, half their alumni work at 7-Eleven and the other half of holding it up. Uh, oh, so, I mean, he, he, he was not politically correct. He was not. No, no, uh, no. He was not. But, but, but once that imploded, that led you to the Atlantic, back to the to, to back to the Carolina and back to the Atlantic Coast Conference. Talk talk about that migration. Yeah, it did. Um, and it was uh, it was a intense time, you know, especially as Arkansas 
it was one of the early, you know, the independents moving into a conference was of a whole different nature than an established conference member from what at the time would have been considered a major conference, leaving one conference for another. And it was motivated to, you know, Roy Kramer, SEC commissioner, there was legislation on the books that if you moved into uh, divisions and it actually specified 12 teams or more um, that you could conduct a championship game. And so that was what was the catalyzing motivation for Arkansas and the Southeastern conference. And um, you just had a sense that, um, you know, there's only so much you could be doing. And so um, I started, I think, feeling like it was time for a change. Had actually talked to the folks in San Antonio and David Robinson, you know, I had stayed up with and David was down in San Antonio and uh, the Alamo Bowl uh, or the leadership in the uh, sports community down there was going to start a bowl game. And so Raycom, who you know well, um, and who our rights were with in the Southwest Conference approached me about potentially running that game. Uh, and at the same time, uh, John LaCrone left the ACC to become commissioner of the Midwestern Collegiate Conference, now the Horizon League. And uh, so Gene Corgan, who had been the AD at Notre Dame, and here's sort of where you get back to the relationships. And when you're playing, you really don't know the AD, you sort of know him, but like your coach is your world. But um, uh, Commissioner Corgan had been the AD at Notre Dame when I was playing there. I had uh, sort of maintained a relationship when I was in law school. And uh, through Tom Mickle, who became a dear friend, uh, when John LaCrone left, uh, Tom called up and said, uh, you know, hey, we may have a spot here. Said I was sort of far down the road in San Antonio. He goes, let me get back to you. And so Corgan called the next day. And San Antonio hadn't offered, and he goes, um, you know, what would it take to get you up to Greensboro? And I said, just tell me when to start. And so those uh, seven years in Greensboro to me, uh, Florida State had just joined the ACC. The staff was great. Um, uh, Gene was doing so much nationally. Uh, Dave Gavitt at the Big East, a young Jim Delaney at the Big Ten. Uh, you know, Gene and Roy Kramer had a very good relationship, even though the ACC and SEC overlapped. It was an exciting time in college sports. Television was growing. The regional sports networks were um, uh, were getting launched and becoming players in it all. Um, that's my first intersection with you yep. through the folks at Georgia Tech. And you know, I still remember uh, you speaking to our group. And it's something that I've repeated probably for sure a half dozen times every year for now going on 25, 30 years. You came into our marketing directors group and, and give you the big intro and think you're going to sort of just get into some, you know, technical things. And he said, put your pens down. All right, guys, listen up guys. And, you know, we have, you know, ACC was getting diverse too, so it wasn't just uh, um, it wasn't just just guys. But you go, um, let me tell you how corporate America works. And you said ninety percent of the people wake up and go into work every day, and they think, how do I not lose my job? And the other ten percent wake up and go into work, and they say, how can I be great today? And that has stuck with me since that day, Rick. And I just love that. And I've used it with people. And it, it's, uh, it's been uh, something that's been sort of a North Star for me in terms of uh, perspective and mentality and optimism, honestly. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we say, you know, people in corporate America live lives of quiet desperation. And, you know, it's just uh, very few people want to be great. Um, but when you find those people, and I even look at today in the intercollegiate athletics, I, I'm amazed at what I call sustained excellence. You know, mm-hmm. getting to the mountaintops once, staying on the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. You know, we lost Bobby Bowden recently. And, mm-hmm. 
what he did at Florida State. I mean, I think mm-hmm. they went 10 years where they were right to the top four for mm-hmm. 10 consecutive years. I mean, that kind mm-hmm. of uh, legacy is unbelievable. I look at what Nick's done at Alabama. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and Nick Saban does it with a different staff every year because mm-hmm. every time they win a national championship, eight guys go become head coaches somewhere. And mm-hmm. he continues mm-hmm. to do it. And, and in corporate America, it's the same way. You know, I was fortunate to latch myself to some leaders that wanted to be great and they allowed – agencies to be great um mm-hmm. and i think working for you know <clears throat> gene cargan allowed y'all to be great too mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean that was you know he gave you free reign you know to work with raycom develop new things create new oh. programs i mean that that's i think that's essential. Rick, i gotta tell you tom mickle the first day he goes he goes hey you're gonna be able to do your thing here but he goes let me give you this bit of advice he goes don't schedule anything for lunch i go huh he goes, just don't schedule any lunch meetings. Because what Corgan would do is like he'd start walking down the hall. I go, all right, we're going to lunch. And he just started to be thinking out loud. And it was after about the second lunch, I go, you know what? This is all going to happen about three weeks from now. <laughs> and we're seeing it today. So it, it was uh, his gifts on so many levels and his values. And then the ability to really, um, really uh, uh, work with others and appreciate others, not just work with them, like appreciate others. And, and I think some really good things got done in that time. You know, the governance system was totally overhauled. Control, for better or worse, and this will get us into another topic, was formally transitioned to the presidents, 1996, um, went away from the one school, one vote to a representative form of governance, um, you know, to where in theory, those conferences that, you know, had sort of the most at stake were able to establish policy or had the ability to establish a policy to better control their, uh, their futures. And um, the postseason, college football postseason, evolved. Uh, Delaney doesn't get enough credit for bringing the Rose Bowl and the Big Ten into that system, so that uh, you know that one and two could be decided on the field. Um, at the same time that the top end was getting sorted out, uh, significantly more opportunities, uh, uh, bowl opportunities, were being developed for. Um, for other program, you know, for the programs that weren't playing for national titles, college hoops was in a good place, and women's sports were really growing. And the regional sports networks, I thought, had a lot to do with that. Uh, the exposure that the Olympic sports uh, would get, and and you you know all these people. I mean, Hunter Nickel at, at Fox Sports South, Kathy Whedon in Florida. Um, Terry Chile and, and Jody Shapiro in D.C., and they became great partners of the ACC, great partners with Raycom, and they provided a ton of opportunities. We started an ACC Futures program. You know, and people were getting jobs in the industry, ACC student-athletes through that, so it was a special time to be in Greensboro. And, and then John, for the last two years of my time there, was great. And uh, he just finished, uh, you know, a, 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 a legendary career as uh, the longest-serving commissioner of the ACC. Well, then you had a great fork in the road. You got the chance to go be the boss um, at the MAC. Talk about that. I did, and um, you know, and again, uh, just sort of, I think, in the spirit of the podcast, um, that wasn't a straight line for me. Um, so it was 1999, and had the opportunity to interview uh, for the MAC. It, would have, it was going to bring me back to the Midwest and uh, you know, a lot of good things at the ACC, but this was another step. And um, so I was competitive in the interview process, but I did not get offered the job first. And in fact, uh, 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 it was offered to and accepted by, uh, by Tom McElroy, who was at the Big East at the time. And so that stung a little bit. <laughs> you get competitive on this stuff. And, um, and Tom, uh, you know, t- accepted the position. And then a few days later, just 
I, you know, and I don't know all that was around in times of friend just felt like it wasn't the right move for him at that time. So, so the Mac called me up and I'm up at grandfather mountain, which is not a bad place to be. Nope. That's a great place to be. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, well, we, you know, Tom, uh, the, the position's back open. And what do you think? I go, well, good luck in your search. <laughs> like, I was not having any of it. Yeah, you didn't want to be anybody's refried beans at this point. I I needed to get it out of my system. And so um, they they said, well, just maybe think about it. We're not going to do anything too soon. And then uh, Commissioner Swafford was great about just sort of, well, if you wanted it before, you know, (laughs) whatever those reasons were, they're probably still there. And I think my biggest – Concern. The Mac was not in a great spot at the time, and you might remember that there was a real push to um, sort of uh, kick certain conferences out of Division One A, and and the Mac was definitely in a bullseye. And I just go, hey, it's a struggling league, and now they can't even you know make their first hire work. Like, could I really be successful in leading this group when they knew I wasn't their first choice? And so I had to process that and talk to a few people that I had known through the process. And in the end, um, you know, got to the right point where I I felt it would fit and that I could do some things. And uh, we moved the office from Toledo to Cleveland, really spent a lot of time um, working with some great folks who've gone on in the industry with with the Cavaliers, Jim Kaler, Lee Stacey. Chad Estes was there, Rick, who's now running Legends, and they did such an unbelievable job with our um, with our basketball tournament, uh, and it's still in Cleveland today. And so that was a showcase. Our, our football connected right away. Marshall was excellent, and I thought it was going to be tough to get MAC football respected. We weren't drawing big crowds. Um, we didn't, you know, we weren't nationally ranked. We had started a championship game. Marshall had had Randy Moss. There was a little bit of profile building. We weren't. We hadn't had a nationally televised game in 15 years. So I come in like the big TV guy, and uh, I got all these relationships. And so um, I go like, we're just going to find any way to get you know get Marshall on a nationally televised game because that's who you're gonna um, that's who you're gonna feature. So I called Dave Brown up, who you know well, <laughs> and. And I go, I go, Brownie, I go, we will move. And I hadn't talked to our schools. I just figured you could get it done. I go, we will move any game on our schedule to a spot if you've got a window. And he goes, oh, RC. He goes, I'd rather go dark. (laughs) Brownie, the brutal truth, the brutal truth. Yeah. But as it turns out, we did find a window. Marshall and Toledo play on a Thursday night. Uh, Mike Tarico and Lee Corso are, are, are in Huntington, West Virginia for it. It's a great game. And we had a few more opportunities after that. And then, our football took off and we had, I mean, you go through the coaches that were in the league and it was uh, Gary Pinkle at Toledo, Terry Hepner at Miami, Urban comes into Bowling Green, Bob Pruitt at Marshall, Joe Novak, Northern Illinois, then Brian Kelly and Butch Jones at Central Michigan, Jim Grobe at Ohio. Like it was, yeah, they great, were great all coaches. Yep. great yep. Yep. and great ADs. Yep. And they stayed out of our way. Like they just said, find us opportunities. And it was a, it was a really fortunate time. Uh, Roethlisberger gets to Miami, uh, builds to the 2003 season where on one Saturday afternoon, we had three nationally ranked wins, Marshall over Kansas state, Toledo over Pittsburgh and Northern Illinois in Tuscaloosa. And so it, it was uh, exciting. And that was the year actually where the BCS, um, finally, that was the year the negotiations took place to finally open up the BCS to the, to the mid-majors, to the non-power schools. And the MAC was a big part of that. And that, in time, led to Northern Illinois playing in an Orange Bowl, Western Michigan playing in a Cotton Bowl, and 
you know, Boise double overtime, Statue of Liberty win over Oklahoma. All that happened in the 2003 season. Well, this this episode will run a little later than when we record it, so some things may have changed between now and the time that it airs. But I'm I am hopeful that the hurt feelings about Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC and the the alliance between the three conferences is not going to necessarily kill the talk of the expansion. And and I, you know I don't think anything's broken right now in the four team playoff. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, I mean I, I'm not sure there are 12 teams or even eight teams that can win a national championship. Right. But but in America we like the opportunity and. You know, I love the idea of a Mac school or a Sunbelt school or certainly an American Athletic Conference school at least having the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what makes March Madness so great is Thursday and Friday, the mm-hmm. first weekend, where, mm-hmm. where David just slays Goliath. And mm-hmm. will it happen in college football? It's a different game. Probably not. But there's just something uniquely American about Hey, everybody gets a shot. And if we, I know Rob Temple, who's our CEO, he he did the original architecture that said, let's have an eight nine play in, right? Um, which I think this past year would have been Coastal Carolina yeah. and Liberty. Well, they yeah. ended up playing in the Cure Bowl in one of the great games ever. Mm-hmm. Now the winner of that would have had the chance to go to Tuscaloosa and probably get killed. But who right. cares? I mean, right. I, I just do think. You know, you think about Mac schools, and there's great football playing mm-hmm. the Mac, competitive football. And once in a lifetime, somebody comes along that just puts it together, and you say, you know, they may not win a national championship, but, but they did, they deserve to be in the consideration, I think. And Yeah. And, yeah. You know, if I can jump in on that, Rick, because um, you're, you're really close to it. I do think you raise, to me, the sports are very different. And, um, and so at least in the time when I was, uh, at the Mac and even at the ACC a little bit prior, um, people play football, you know, a lot of basketball programs, like their, their goal is a final four, right? Like that's sort of how they're built, how they're wired. You know, you, you can probably, you'd know the number better than I, but you know, you're talking, 50, 60, 70 programs probably are thinking that way. Um, in football, it's a much smaller number that think we're, we're built and our fans are wired to win a national championship. And so the bowl system offered tremendous opportunities. And you, you know, very few have done as much as you have to support and try to galvanize a bowl system. And so to me, you know, for Northern Illinois to take the field in Miami against Florida State in one of the historic games, the Orange Bowl, for Western Michigan to play Wisconsin, ironically, in Dallas. To me, those have so much value in and of themselves, regardless of whether it was on a path to a national championship. You know, in the, I think, um, in the, 14 semifinal games we've had in the CFP era, like 11 have been decided by three touchdowns or more. Yeah. You know, so like we are really top heavy right now in the sport. And I think those factors and obviously how it impacts regular season will all be weighed. What Texas and Oklahoma Moving to the SEC is done. I think it's changed the math for sure. The math is different. And I think people are, are going to be digesting what that means. You'll see expansion, in my opinion, but whether you see it as quickly as you might have absent that move, I think is less likely. Well, I think we have a whole lot to talk about, about where we're going. If you don't mind, I'd like to bring you back next week and, oh. and do part two of this thing, uh, because I, I think we can get into some real interesting issues. Um, so let's plan to do that. And uh, I can't thank you enough for being with us today from the bridge. Oh, well, thanks so much. And I uh, appreciate you and all all you do. And uh, and it's uh, it's, it's great. Uh 
feeling like you're working towards some uh, some some common goals for sure, Rick. So thanks so much. Let's jump back up on the old soapbox. I am totally convinced that the single most important key to progress for a country or a region or even a civilization is freedom of religion. Let's talk about that for a minute. The United States has flourished because we do not have an official religion. In fact, we protect your right to worship God any way you want to. And if you look at the original 13 colonies, they had numerous religions that settled this country. You had Quakers in one state. You had Puritans in another state. You had Calvinists in another state. Our colony, South Carolina, was not a religious colony. (laughs) If there was a religion, it was money. This was a for-profit colony. And so in South Carolina, you have the oldest Baptist church. You have the oldest French Huguenot church. You have the second oldest Jewish synagogue. You have all sorts of religions in South Carolina because they were all welcomed here to help make money. Now, let's compare that with the Middle East. I heard something interesting a few days ago. People have forgotten of the art, architecture, wisdom, and economic vitality of the Arab world during the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the Arabs invented the first vaccine. They took a small piece of smallpox and put it on a sore place on you where you would get a little bit of smallpox to keep you from dying from smallpox. Brilliant. The Arabs did this in the 1700s. The Arab empire was all about progress. And then the Ottomans backed the wrong horse during the First World War. They backed the Germans. And when the Germans lost, we took over the Middle East. We colonized the Middle East, either the French or the British, to tragic consequences. And what has happened in the Middle East since then? No progress. Why? Every country has only one religion. In fact, Muslim countries only have one form of Muslim. We have seen the fall of Afghanistan. We spent 20 years and thousands of American lives and billions, let me repeat myself, billions of our money to try to bring democracy to a country in Afghanistan. It's now been overrun and taken back over by the Taliban, who does not allow freedom of religion. In fact, you either believe what they believe or they cut off your head. No progress. Look around the world at the countries that do not flourish, and you'll find countries that have one forced religion. Freedom of religion is the key to progress. And that's my view from the soapbox. Let's get back out there on the road with Rick for another great meal. I think if I have one meal left in my life, it will be fried chicken. I love fried chicken. And you know from listening to this show that I'm not much on chain restaurants, but there is this terrific little chain with 10 locations in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex called Babe's Chicken Dinner House. The original was started in 1993 in the small town of Roanoke, Texas, by Paul and Mary Beth Vineyard. Mary Beth's nickname was Babe, and they still use her fried chicken recipe. They now have 10 locations, but I still like the original one. They serve a very limited but great menu. You have a choice of either fried chicken, fried chicken tenders, or chicken fried steak, plus green salad with ranch dressing, cream corn, mashed potatoes with cream gravy, 
and homemade biscuits. Man, is it good. This is my kind of place on the road with Rick. Next time you're in Dallas, find your way to one of the Babe's Chicken Dinner House restaurants. It's time to sign off. It's been so much fun with my pal Rick Chris that we're going to bring him back next week. We'll be back next week with another edition of From the Bridge.